The sporting goods innovator and legend Jim Easton passed away on December 4th of 2023 at his home in Los Angeles, California. Jim had fought a long battle after several debilitating strokes and, uh, you know, he, he fought for recovery the same way he'd lived with focus and determination and dignity and hard work and was an inspiration to all that knew him. Jim passed away at the age of 88. Jim was born in Los Angeles on July 26th of 1935, the son of archery innovators Doug and Mary Easton. Doug had built his business making highly crafted custom archery gear more than 100 years ago now, popular at the time with Hollywood luminaries like Errol Flynn. And from childhood, Jim worked with his mom and dad in their archery shop in Los Angeles. Jim had a long journey from those humble beginnings in Los Angeles to becoming the head of what would become the largest sporting goods company in the world at one time. And um, there's a, a long story to be told there, but there's no one better to join us for that story than Jim's son, the chairman of the Easton Companies now, Greg Easton. And Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Happy to be here, George. Good morning. It's an honor to have you here. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time. And, uh, you know, we have had a lot of discussions about the company and, and your dad and the innovations that he created over the years. And I kind of want to frame this podcast as a tribute to him, to what he brought to our sport, to the things that he made capable of, uh, you know, for, for so many archers around the world, but also for the thousands and thousands of people that he led and that you now lead um, you know, who are part of the Easton companies, including Hoyt and Easton Technical Products. It's a, it's a story that, you know, it's such a rich story of a life well-lived, a life of excellence. It's hard to start somewhere, so I think the place to start is, you know, Jim's determination to, to go to college, working at Douglas Aircraft and earning his engineering degree at UCLA, where you also went to school. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, you're right, George. It's hard, you know, and you think about, you know, after something like this happens, we knew it was coming for a, a long time, but uh, it's still it's still a shock. Um, but it's it was, you know, it was sort of a prolonged process with my dad being incapacitated for so long. But yes, going back to kind of the beginning, or at least what I've heard about it, because obviously I wasn't wasn't there for it. But yeah, you know, a real tough relationship with my dad and his father at one point in time where he wanted to finish high school and then go off to college. And my grandfather said, you know, no, you need to come work for the office. And my dad was insistent on going to college and therefore you got to pay rent at home and uh, basically led to them not talking to each other for my understanding for about five years I think it's uh, interesting from a personality standpoint and what people tend to do. And that you talk about that pendulum. My dad's pendulum, I think, swung for that particular point, swung all the way to the other side for me, which was, I'd like you to be involved and have these companies someday, but only if you want to. Almost to the point of, I sometimes wonder, did he want me to? Correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of put you through the ringer to almost make you prove that you had what it took and that you had the desire to do the things needed to run a company of this magnitude. 
Yeah, like I said, he gave me the opportunity, right? Just if you want to come do it. As a matter of fact, he said one day, if you want to come do this, great. And if you have something else you want to go do, I'll help you start a different company. So he was very complete opposite of his his father. Sure. Now, maybe I can understand the situation, right? His father was, I got a startup. I need every free labor hour I can get. And if you're not going to work for me, then... I need you to pay rent because I got to make ends meet. I don't know how bad it was, you know, financially, but I can understand maybe my grandfather's position as again, my dad's was really the opportunity. And yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say it was like a boot camp or anything, but working summers through high school up at the factory. I mean, I could have been in Balboa on the beach and instead of in, in the San Fernando Valley, you know, it was still nice and hot, a hundred and plus degrees inside the heat treat room in those areas at times, but, uh, it was something I just had a lot of interest in, in doing and thought, you know, this is a great business and a great opportunity. And it would be, you know, a real honor to be able to have that legacy. Uh, but I think the ringer was always there. I look at some of my dad's old trust documents, um, when I was a kid and younger and trying to get into the business. I mean, it was very clear if I were, if my dad were to pass, my son needs to be at this point by this age or sell the company. And then he needs to be at this point by this age or sell the company. So it was very, you know, stair-stepped out of, um, it's not just something that would go to him. You had to hit those milestones um, with specific timing, I, I gather. Not those particular milestones because, I, you know, I, my dad lived through all of them. He subsequently put in another set of, uh, another uh, estate plan that had, Similar hurdles, just that if he were, because I was far enough up in the company, it had still had a couple of hurdles. When he hit his stroke, I had to go really look through that and say, okay, what's the, what are the hurdles? A couple of them were titles, which weren't very, I was already president and then CEO or something like that. It was simple things. But even the transition of the company ownership to me was to happen over five years, like 20% but only if the company was making more money each year or some, whatever the hurdles were. So even though he hadn't passed, the trustee chose to start transitioning some of that, but I still had to, the company still had to make those, make those hurdles. So, um, again, nothing that was Herculean effort by any means, but something we still had to pay attention to. But it showed a certain vision, right? I mean, you know, there was a, a plan put in place to ensure success on a certain level. There was no chance taken per se, from what I gather. You're, you're right. Uh, you know my dad well enough that from a excellence and a detail and thinking of all the permutations was something he really enjoyed doing. And so you saw that in whether it was a product design or an idea, um, all the way into his estate plan. I mean, it, the complications in there and the details are, I've had a number of experts in the area who, you know, have been now helping us make all these transitions, say they've never seen anything like that. Well, that's typical of Jim, Yes, you know? Well, and and as you know, there's things that uh, he was very well known at doing, glancing at a spreadsheet and finding the error in the spreadsheet. I don't think he could have built a spreadsheet on his own on a computer, but he could look, glance down the numbers and say there's something wrong with these numbers to the I don't know how many times, and you've probably seen it in a a business world where we would review a contract from somebody and go, you know, this isn't right. We're going to change this or it's just poorly written. And often the response from them would be, well, well, everybody else just signs it. 
It's like, well, we're not just everybody else. We actually read these things. So that, um, that eye for detail didn't just apply to business. It applied to product too. I can't tell you how many times I'd be walking through the factory in Van Nuys with your dad and he'd glance down at a jarky rack and a jarky rack is a type of rack that holds set up to hold arrows. And I think 16,500 of a particular size would fit in this rack. And Jim would take one look and he'd pull out one arrow and it would be the one arrow in those 16,500 with a problem of some sort, a minor problem, but nevertheless, there's something about how he was wired that made him able to zero in on those little details. And it's little details that make up so many aspects of the foundation of our sport, you know? Whether it was the specifications and the heat treat for an aluminum arrow or the rule set for the Olympic round in archery, I think we hear the words excellence, we acknowledge the word excellence, the, the seeking for perfection, but the detail orientation was just legendary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of times the guys in the factory would tend to push back. You know, why is this specification? You know, we've just started forming the tube that's going to make the arrow. You know, why, why so tight? And it really was because you wanted almost that same tolerance at the end. And so if you were too loose in the beginning, you can't, you know, you, or if you miss it in the beginning, you can't fix it at the end. So those type of things that people got to got to learn about working for the company. And uh, even though, you know, he was a, a hard pusher in that area, but just loved spending time on the factory floor and, and interacting with the people out there. I mean, everybody that, you know, I've talked to over the years and especially since his passing of just, you know, his support he gave and what a great person he was and how uh, helpful he was to them. And I think, uh, you know, that came across a lot of his outside the company relationships and with a lot of people in, in the companies too, I have just said what a great, and I think it's, it's built the culture. I think if anything I've, I've hope I've maintained and, and fostered that culture, but that culture was really set by him. And when somebody retires after 30, 40 years with our company or, and says what a great time they had, or somebody who's worked for us and gone someplace else and maybe come back or maybe not, but have said still the best company I ever worked for. So I appreciate, I value, really value that. Yeah, there's a great deal of truth in what you just said. It's, it's a family company, of course. You know, um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier was that eventually Jim became the leader of what was at the time the largest sporting goods organization in the world, you know, when you consider Easton Bats, Bell Helmets, Gyro Helmets, Rydell Technical Sporting Equipment, um, you know, that merger of Easton Sports and those brands created Easton Bell Sports back in 2006. But the one thing that the family always held on to was where it came from, what, what started the company more than 100 years ago, which was the archery business. Today, Easton Technical Products in Salt Lake City and Hoyt Bows in Salt Lake City, 400 yards apart or less, um, are still family-owned. And those are your companies today. Yeah. You know, as you said, that started with my, my grandfather and my, my grandmother trying to 
figure that out, trying to figure out archery. And I think that early example of even making the, making the best wooden arrows at the time, but having the frustration with this is not really the right way to do this or how can you be, I know you've talked about it before, but how can you be trying to hit the center and be accurate and consistent in archery, but needing to aim, almost never aim at the middle. Yeah, 12 different, 12 different aiming spots yeah. with your dozen arrows. Due right? to the spine and the SAS and even the straightness of a wooden arrow. Right. And I, I think that really frustrated my grandfather and my dad inherited a lot of that, you know, whether it was how we were making something, looking at a process or looking how something's being done or when it's conceptualizing new products and having the, probably the engineers say, wow, that's, I'm not sure, that's really hard, whether it's making an AC arrow, which you know a lot about, trying to get that off the ground, or a titanium softball bat back in the day, or oh, yeah. I'm sure they're, or even probably the larger diameter, you know, when he first made the Green Easton, which was just, the, you know, went up to the maximum diameter that bats were allowed to be made. I mean, nobody was making that at that time. My impression, by the way, of the reason that Jim decided to um, kind of spin off the team sports businesses was the frustration that he might have had with the organizations running those sports deciding that you could no longer innovate in terms of performance for the products. Jim didn't want to just make a commodity product. No, absolutely not. His objective was never, you know, how do I build a really strong brand in sports, which we've seen other people do, and then you know, leverage that into all the other bunch of other categories just to have a big name in sport. It was how do I make a product better that the athlete can perform better? And absolutely, that that there were a number of factors, but I think that was a major one of he saw the performance restrictions coming in, could see that there was some room for some improvements, but that it was really going to get uh, capped, if you will, in what you can do to make a better performing product. And for him, he lost, you know, that was his, as you know, that was his interest, whether he came up, whenever he'd come up here when I was running Easton and we would say, okay, we want to spend some time, you know, we need to go through financials and where we are and sales. And we want to talk about marketing and we want to, you know, how we're positioning and all these other things we're doing and talk about product. I mean, we'd spend 95% of the time on product. I mean, that's just what he wanted and wanted to know how we're either producing it better or what we're doing to come up with the next new thing that would help the archer perform better. Is it too inside baseball for me to say that that would frustrate some of his presidents and, and some of his managers from the standpoint of, all right, Jim's coming up to Salt Lake City and he's got this agenda and we've got to keep him on track, but he just wants to talk about arrows and quality. Yeah, I think frustrate, um, yeah, to the point of, well, especially when it, you know, when eight and nine o'clock at night's rolling around and people are like, okay, am I going to get home for, to see my family or anything? Or, you know, are we just going to sit here and keep talking about, you know, how many wraps on an arrow, or what the shape of the point should look like. Do you have any idea what a hero that made of a, of that man for us engineers though? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's what, yeah, he, a hero. He was an engineer's engineer. Yes, although very um, not not as direct as some current leaders I hear about in the in the kind of in different industries, but uh, more than more than once an engineer would come in post a meeting with my dad and saying, "So do I need to quit?" Because my dad was very direct at saying, 
that's a really bad idea. And I won't say he lacked empathy, but he just didn't have a lot of it when it came to work. It was just, here's what it is. Here's why I think that's a bad idea. You can do better. Go back, go back and do it again. <laughs> Alternatively, though, if you had a good idea and he saw it that way, he'd back you 100% all the time. Yes. Uh, a good example is the X10. You know, when the team that put the X10 together came up with the formula for making that thing work, we knew it was going to be really, really hard to do from a production standpoint, really difficult, right? It would push all of the limits of what could be done and it would be expensive to do. Jim didn't care because all he wanted was what is going to work better? What is going to function better? He was not one of those guys that would say, all right, it's got to hit this price point. It had to hit a performance point. And And then then the guy running the company was left for selling it for less than we made it for in the beginning. That happened a lot. Yes. <laughs> for example, uh, some of the accessory items, you know, the, the, the pro shop spine gauge. Did you ever hear the story of the pro shop spine gauge? Well, Easton had this pro shop spine gauge that we sold through the 70s and 80s. And this pro shop spine gauge was made with this big piece of invar and a custom precision gauge and a custom weight. And it sold for about $440. And somebody decided to go and audit the, the bill, bill of materials. Yeah. And it probably cost about $1,200 to build. Yeah, lucky we didn't sell many of those. So that's <laughs> No, but, but that was, Jim kind of knew that, but he didn't care because he wanted to have a quality product out there that pro shops could use. Because at the end of the day, what it did was it proved the superiority of Easton product over other product. So he saw yeah. that as a, that tool gave everybody who had one the opportunity to see, oh, that's why you want an Easton arrow. So there was more to it than, you know, but, but that was, that was kind of his thinking. It's like, all right, we're going to lose some money on this thing, but it's going to go toward our goal of uh, promoting our brand, showing off our technology, showing off our quality, our excellence, you know, and I think that that was a unique thing. You don't see much of that from most CEOs, you know, and, 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 corporate types. And certainly, you know, what's interesting, Greg, look at what's happened to the archery industry in the last 30 years, 20 years. So many companies have been bought up by investment houses, right? And it's, it's really had an impact on the uh, commoditization of some product out there in the market, don't you think? Yeah, I think it, it tends to do that. I I was just at the uh, ATA show at it's, you try to find a brand and you used to look them up on the map and then you'd get near the booth and start looking for the brand in the sky and you don't see them anymore because the, the holding company is the one that's up there on the banner. And then you got, Oh, good. I remember, Oh yeah, the company I'm looking for is inside that company. So, you know, they lose a lot of their presence at the, at the show. And I mean, I just, I can't see how that doesn't have an impact on, on innovation and, you know, the desire to kind of keep pushing that envelope of what's new and what's different. Again, what my dad was just all about, um, you know, and it's not to say he didn't have an excellent business mind, which he did, because there were a number of transitions our company had to go through from when we were, you know, making baseball bats for somebody else and then decided we've got something better. They didn't want to pay for it. Oh, the customer doesn't want that. They're not going to pay that much more for bat having to try to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we get this to market? How do we go from being a 
OEM manufacturer for somebody else's brand name to get our brand name out there and did that a number a couple of more than more than once for sure in different categories. Yeah, not just baseball bats, but other things like snowshoes and well, uh, hockey, the hockey sticks is the other hockey sticks. Yeah, the su- successful one. Yeah, yeah. And you were deeply involved in those Easton Sports products early in your career. Um, you were running Easton Sports for a period of time and doing marketing for Hoyt, and then running. You know, yeah. that I started that as a product manager down. and kind of worked my way through the through the business. Yeah. yeah. And you've probably done just about every job there is to do in the factory yourself. And, you know, I think you and I, you and I spent quite a bit of time developing an all carbon arrow, you know, hands on, yeah. uh, working in our composites facility in San Diego back in the day. Going back and forth to down there. No, that was a, try, trying to learn and figure that out as that market was changing around us. So that was a, that was a good time, but it was. And, you know, I, it, it taught me that, uh, just because the owner's son is the owner's son doesn't mean he's not willing to get his hands dirty, you know? Well, you said I've done every job out there, which may be true, and, and I'm sure not very well in many cases, and I apologize for all those people that had to fix the product after I got done trying to work on them over the years. But uh, no, I, you know, I really, again, enjoyed, enjoyed the, I enjoy the factory and the business and the, and the work inside of it too. So it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun business to be in. And, and just even just the people in it, whether it's inside our company or archers in general, just a great group of passionate people about what they're doing. And it's just a real honor to be able to help people fulfill that dream of whatever they're trying to do in archery. Jim, as we've discussed, has left his mark on global sport, not just with products, but also with leadership. And his legacy, one of his legacies, I will say, having been there firsthand, I, I will say this unreservedly, that our sport would not be in the Olympic Games today without what your dad did for it. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I don't think that is a, um, you know, we're not, we're not saying something that's not true here. It is absolutely fundamental to the existence of archery in the Olympic Games today that the changes that Jim wanted, that he had to fight for, that he had to battle for, were finally implemented. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It, I mean, I think people I think people know, but it's important to understand especially at that time. I mean, there was there's no guarantee that your sport stays in the Olympics. As a matter of fact, the charter calls for 28 sports. There are sports and had been sports for many years trying to fight their way into that. How do they get into that game? The other thing to remember is the IOC <clears throat> IOC Olympic sports is a business if you will. And what they're selling is the sports, the TV revenue, the, the viewership. And so it's that, how do you keep sports exciting? And you're right. When my dad got involved, uh, the, uh, prior round, you know, I'm blanking on the name of it. The, the grand, Fita. grand Fita, thank you, was hundred well, at least 64 men and 64 women potentially standing on a big field shooting arrows. And that is absolutely untelevisable. And as anybody who's ever been to one, you don't know what's going on, who's leading, who's shooting well, who isn't, who's falling apart because of the pressure, whatever is happening, you have no idea. And so it was, my dad got a clear message when he got in there of, you need to make this sport interesting and televisable, or we're going to put something that's more exciting in effectively. And you're right. Um, his tenacity, uh, you know, one of the areas that maybe I didn't get as much of, but his tenacity and just really realizing, okay, this has got to happen. 
and we've got to make that change. And then really, I think all the way up through the people on his board to coaches and athletes and a lot of people pushing back on making that change. And you can imagine, I used to be able to win a gold medal standing on the field with, an, with, with 64 other athletes, a lot less pressure. Right? Nobody knows that I'm three points ahead or whatever it is. To head-to-head competition, where now the camera's in my face while I'm shooting this arrow that if I don't shoot a, a 10, the match is over or whatever. Um, and you have an obnoxious announcer telling them that. Too. <laughs> yes, with that booming voice. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I, can, I can see, I mean, just the amount of pressure from all the areas of we can't and don't want to do this would have been, um, I think, would have slowed down or stopped many, many people on their tracks. And for my dad, it was like, you know, this is not a, this is not a really a question. We've got to do this, and I'm just going to keep pushing. We have a lot to uh, obviously thank the, the other people that were involved in that. It wasn't just Jim, but it was Jim who marshaled the resources, who saw the need and made it happen. So he brought in people like Peter Diamond from NBC Sports and other trusted advisors from the IOC and from other sports that had successfully transformed their sports to create what became the Olympic round. So it wasn't just that Jim was a wellspring of these ideas. He also knew how to marshal the resources that would be needed to make it happen and lead those people in the direction of a clear goal, which was save the sport, make it televisable, make it something that people will enjoy watching. I was privileged to be part of the uh, 12 Olympic Games, and Jim was there when we had what was arguably one of the most dynamic audiences for our sport. And the sport got accolades from outside of our sport for its presentation at Lord's Cricket Ground in, mm-hmm. in London. And I, I hope, I, I think and I hope that he was pretty satisfied to see that. Yeah, I mean, that was, what, two years after his his first stroke. And, yeah, you, you saw him there. And I still got some great pictures of him being there. Still had a real hard time talking but was aware of what's going on and Very was able so. to watch and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, those, uh, I think he was re- really pleased with that. The accolades are long, and you know, the thing is, the other the other aspect of Jim Easton was his willingness to give back. I don't think people will ever realize just how much time he put in just to the IOC position. You know, traveling 180 days a year, and still running the companies. Obviously, he had very competent people like Peter Weaver and Eric Watts and Randy Walk, and mm-hmm. you know, handling the day to day stuff. But you know, that leadership stuff was still there while he was doing all that work on behalf of the sport. And there was nobody that I've worked with, maybe with the exception of you, who could multitask so many things and, and, and have so many different irons in the fire, you know, daily memos going out with detailed little things about specific things, little product things here or there, or big things like, you know, goals for building a factory in such and such place and everything in between had a, had a real mind for being able to handle all that detail. He also had a great staff to help him with it. I'm sure. Absolutely. But yeah, he, you know, the detail couldn't, he couldn't pick up a document without having the red pen in his hand. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter if this is the, 
first draft or the 50th, chances are he either find something or decide, you know, we got to, we've got to change this or make a, make a correction here. So the, I just, just the idea of the ability to focus and really, I think did a, and again, I, I appreciate the comparison, but I've only got pieces of it. The really the skill he had to not only read for content, but also read for grammar or spelling errors. And we all know, we've seen the studies now about how easy it is to fool the human mind to fix the spelling of a word or change the color of the word, you know, the things they do that we, our mind fixes it. And again, he would be the guy that would find that 10 people have edited this document and never saw that some simple word was spelled wrong. He pulled out the one arrow in the jerky rack. Yes. Yep. And would do the same thing with documents and that sort of thing. So I think he, and it's what, what he really enjoyed doing. I mean, uh, whether it was a, you know, late night at the, at the factory or the office when, it was quiet and he could get a lot of stuff done or a day on the beach when he's down there sometimes with the family, but really just sitting there work, working on things. It's really what he enjoyed doing was, was spending his time trying to, trying to make things better. Yeah. I can vouch for that myself, having had the privilege of having worked for him directly for a number of years. And, you know, I'd get to the factory at seven thirty in the morning and I'd be smiling on my way to work, by the way. And I'd leave at nine o'clock at night and I'd be smiling when I left work. But I'd look up at that corner office in the corporate building across the street from the Van Nuys factory, and the lights were on, and you could see the top of Jim's head. He was still working. He'd come in at 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning, 9, 9.30. Wasn't a super early guy, but liked, no, liked working late. Yeah. But he liked working late. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what else to say. I will say this, though. Um, commitment to archery. Not just what he did personally, getting on airplanes, flying off to... FIDA congresses and IOC meetings and God knows what else, but commitment through the establishment of the Eastern Sports Development Foundations, which started in 1982 as part of the company sponsorship of the Los Angeles 1984 Olympic Games, and today is the largest archery foundation in the world, I, I would say. Yeah. It's right up there. And, um, you know, there's... So many programs, leadership, facilities, programs, training, education for the growth and development of our sport. And um, the archery centers, of course. What a legacy, you know. Now, you have personally had much more to do with those archery centers than your dad. But. Uh, Yeah, but they were uh, largely, I, I had the, I think, the privilege to help bring a lot of those to. Uh, completion and fruition. I mean, a lot of them were in, in works, if you will, or at least in plans when my dad did, did have a stroke. So, and Chula Vista in particular. Yeah, Chula Vista. And it was, you know, a thrill to be able to get those completed and for him to be able to see those. He was at at Chula Vista was actually, we used it for his uh, 80th birthday, 80. Yeah, I think it was his 80th birthday celebration. I got it. And so he was able to see that facility, came up here to see what we had, what I ended up building in, in Salt Lake here, but we, you know, we had planned to build something here. We just hadn't completed what the plan was when his stroke hit. And then, um, even the world archery excellence center, really getting that done with some additional support and, and trying to get that, uh, that, uh, legacy thing put together for, for world archery, which is right there in the Olympic capital. And that's a, it's just been a great supporter of, World of archery inside the Olympic program by having 
not just a fancy new office building, but a training facility for our athletes. Those facilities, you could say that Jim threw the ball, you received it, took it over the line. And your uncle, Bob Easton, had a big role in some of the designs of some of those buildings, including Chula Vista, with its magnificent wooden arched roof. That's a, that is a Robert Easton design, right? Yes. Yeah. He did that. He did that facility for my dad. And so that came out. Yeah. It's a, like you said, a beautiful, beautiful facility. And we will be carrying on that legacy and what my dad started with all that, um, through the foundation here and looking for what else can we do? Where are, where are those other significant ideas and ways to grow our tree? What else can, what else can we do with the resources and the time that we have to try to help all aspects of our tree continue to grow and, and be a part of a, a sport that anybody who wants to can go get involved with? And that's the thing. You know, that's the key about our sport that makes it unique among so many other sports. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this thing as somebody who's been in the sport for 40-something years now, and so have you, and maybe longer no. Well, well you know, I, I shot when I was a kid, yeah, but not a lot, not well, a lot between now and then. And yeah. you know what I mean? Yep. It's, it is, the point is that you, your son could be shooting archery right now. And in 50 years, he could still be shooting archery. Hmm. We could be looking at every member of a family shooting archery. You can't do that with swimming and you can't do that with competitive, you know, football or soccer or that sort of thing. Those things have a shelf life and it's relatively short. Archery is sort of a sport for a lifetime. And that's one of the things that makes it unique. And the role of the foundation to grow our sport, to sustain it, to help it reach new people, you know, is really important. But it is also creating new opportunities and creating um, better lives in some ways. I I know so many people whose lives have been changed in a positive way because of our sport. And I think that that is something we, you know, we don't think about too actively because we're so close to it, but it's the truth. You know, I I see so many people out there. We'll see them in Vegas in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, we will. I mean, you you were talking about shooting as a family together, but even a place like Vegas, I mean, maybe there's other sports that are kind of like this, but literally someone's going to be the lucky or the unlucky group to be near, you know, Olympic medalists like Jay Bars and others that happen to be on the line shooting. And, uh, again, they're not shooting, you know, for a gold medal anymore, but, uh, they're not a lot of sports where you can, as a beginner, literally you could be your first tournament in Vegas, be standing next to a, an Olympic medalist or a world champion or a field champion. I mean, there's, or Greg Easton. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> if you end up there, but yes, I'll be happy to, happy to. Hey, but you'll be on the with line it. with your recurve. I will. Yes, I'm shooting. I've been. I'm, I actually picked it up a few days ago, so that's my excuse for how I, I. I told my friend John that we should have a contest to see who can pick up their bow the latest and still actually get through the whole tournament. So, well, you know, John's not a competitive guy. He's <laughs> not going to go for something like that. <laughs> but no, it's fun. But the, uh, on the archery and on the, especially on the, on the foundation side, uh, you know, my dad always said, this is his way of giving back to archery. Archery let yeah. him do a lot, uh, let, you know, helped us create the team sports and the baseball and the hockey and the bike and all those 
companies and yeah, there were just, years when archery subsidized the oh yeah. some aspects of those things. You know, absolutely, and uh, you know, really where my where his father started and uh, a sport and the, the the product that my my dad had really the ultimate commitment to um, to uh, you know let us give back to the sport. So we keep you know I look forward to what what do we do over the next twenty years or less to really put that put some more more impact on archery and, and make sure people know how, how great it is to come try it. Jim Easton represented a life that is so rich and so full of achievement that this short discussion we're having can't possibly touch upon so many points that, that I want to make and that I'm sure you want to make. But let's look at this as a first discussion and, you know, in coming months we'll have some more discussions about the history of the company and things that you've done and where we're headed from here. Um, but you know, I, want to, I want to express on a personal level. Yeah. I, I, I have a very deep sense of, of loss and grief, but also gratitude that I was able to work with your dad. Um, he taught me so many things. Um, and he really gave me a guidestone to look at and go, I need to be more like that. I need to sweat the details. I need to understand how things work and why things need to be a certain way. I need to be the best engineer I can be. I need to come up with the best products because quite frankly, he was, he was somebody that we felt compelled to make sure we had our eyes dotted and T's crossed before we'd bring something to him, right? Because to your point, he'd pick out, he'd know if there was something, he'd almost instinctively know if something was or wasn't going to work. And so as an engineer, an inspiring man, and a great example for how things need to be done when you're designing product, when you're creating things, when you're innovating. Um, but he was also, you know, a man with tremendous integrity. And mm -hmm. in my experience, that's something he passed on to you too, Greg. When yeah. I, when I, mean, I think of integrity, I think of you and I do think of your dad. I, uh, I appreciate that, George. Yes. I think I know I'm, you hate compliments. I know. But. No, it's, it's uh, it is. I, I would agree. I mean, the, from a, I still remember the. I mean, I've got a couple of couple of different stories, but about that and about integrity that I learned from him over, over my life, and can really look back to really specific moments where I would, uh, or at least at least one major one. You know, it happened right here in Salt Lake City when the whole, some of the, Olympic bribery scandals. They used to call it the Salt Lake City scandal, but it didn't happen here. It had been happening in a lot of places. It kind of came out here, but some guy was. Another IOC member was going to release all of his notes from all of these meetings. So I called my dad. I'm like, all right, what do I need to be ready for, right? What, what can come down? And he paused for just a minute and said, you know, I, I don't do, I haven't done anything that I have to think twice about. And, um, you know, a real lesson in kind of doing things right all the time. And my dad had, you know, was, like you said, not only an engineer and, and technical, but, uh, you know, a a really good memory too, which is not, not something I got, but I still like the lesson because 
I may not be able to remember what I did and the exact decision or what I said 10 years ago, but I know it was the right thing. And so that's all I need to know. I don't have to quite, oh yeah, I was, I bent that rule because, you know, for some reason or some justification people make, it's like, no, we just, we just stick by and continue to want to do the right thing for, you know, whatever it is, our people, the products, our industry, trying to continue to support it. And, and, uh, that's all we really, really care about. You know, I don't have shareholders and other, other people that I have to make quarterly numbers for or make happy. I really got just, Hey, did we do the right thing for archery? And then everything else, the numbers are what they end up being in my, in my book. So Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know that, uh, we're going to have more opportunities to talk about some of these stories. And I like, I like that last one there because I think that that is the capstone on the story of Jim Easton, a man of integrity and a man who didn't have to worry about skeletons in the closet because there weren't any. It was one of those do the right thing and you never have to worry about that sort of thing. And, you know, that fundamentally that was the ultimate lesson for me personally as one of his workers. And I think maybe, you know, as, as his heir. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's other areas that sure if you and the listeners are interested, we can, I'd love to have another one to talk. I think we got onto a lot of different subjects here, but talk more about my dad and what kind of person he was. It's still, and it's always a, you know, and, for those, you know, people that have known my dad, it's always great, you know, when they, if I do talk to them and they're expressing their condolences, I really say, tell me the story, right? Tell me your story about my dad that pops into your head. And it's always, it's always, uh, uh, really, a I can't remember, fulfilling type of story about, oh, he touched me here or he did this or he helped me do this or pushed me to do that or yeah. whatever, somehow, somehow helped me or make me want to improve or be a better person, I think was fantastic. So that is the common thread. I think is that Jim lifted up other people, always worked to try to advance them, make them better by example and by demonstrable action. And I think that that is one reason why I try to do the best I can do with the things that I do. You know, it had a big impact on me personally. And it had a big impact on thousands of thousands of other people that I've worked with over the years and that you've worked with over the years. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I, I wouldn't presume to guess about what it's like to be the son of a man like that, but I will say um, I'm proud that you're my friend. And I know that he would be proud of what you do because I see a lot of examples of of him in how you conduct things. Well, thank thank you, George. And it's great to have you as a friend for all these years too. So uh, appreciate everything we can do and keep doing together and look forward to uh, sitting down and chatting again sometime. We'll continue with our series on the hundred years of excellence of Easton in our uh, upcoming podcasts. Steve and I will be back next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about Vegas and Actually, Greg, if you're going to be in Vegas, we're going to spend a little time with you down there and maybe get a hold of you and, and talk about the Vegas shoot a little bit. Um, and and uh, I, I promise not to bring a microphone to the line with <laughs> your first pass. 
<laughs> but we, uh, we'll have some fun in Vegas coming up soon. Sounds great. Look forward to that, George, and uh, seeing everybody there.